Frank Underwood is the senator from South Carolina in that show that I have not a little hesitation even to reference. It's the show House of Cards. Uh, Frank is brilliant, he's charismatic, but he is rotten to the core. And at every opportunity he has to use his power for his own advantage, he'll do it. And yet, growing up as a nice young Roman Catholic boy, he can't quite shake Jesus from his thinking about how he comports himself and how he thinks about his use of power. And in this scene, a very dimly lit chapel in which he's having a very frank conversation with the chaplain, you hear him wrestle with that understanding of power um, in the face of Jesus. There are two laws we have to remember above all else. He tells us to love God and to love each other. You can't love the people you kill. You sure as hell can. And you have to love the people who are trying to kill you. Jesus loved the Romans. Father, forgive them, he said, for they know not what they do. Why didn't he fight? Why did he allow himself to be sacrificed? I ask myself that question a lot. I understand the Old Testament God whose power is absolute, who rules through fear, but him. There's no such thing as absolute power for us, except on the receiving end. Using fear will get you nowhere. It's not your job to determine what's just. It's not your place to choose the version of God you like best. It's not your duty to serve this country alone, and it better not be your goal to simply serve yourself. You serve the Lord, and through him you serve others. Two rules, love God, love each other, period. You hear him wrestling, you hear him reaching for some side of guidance about how he exerts his authority in light of what he knows of Jesus's authority. And that is true of everyone who has any familiarity with who Jesus is. At some point, you have to ask the question, how does his authority relate to all others? At the, at the center of the strangeness of our belief in him is that he was a man who was also God and he died and he rose. And in dying and rising, he was given the name that was above every other name, and which made his authority matchless. Which means we always have to ask ourselves the question, how does his authority help us think about how we relate to other authorities? We know what it is maybe to express authority, but what does it mean to defer to it? In the first century, you say Jesus is Lord. The immediate question that is put to you is, yeah, but what about Caesar? And in Peter's day, what about Claudius? And, and what about Nero, who would be responsible for the persecution of the church and even Peter's own death? And in our day, we don't have emperors, but we have republics. And so how do you think about the legislative branch and the executive branch and the judicial branch? In all of these, we're asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to defer to authority in light of Jesus' authority over us? Uh, to paraphrase Gandhi, those who say that, that faith and, and government, they don't mix, understands neither of them. At some point, you have to ask yourself the question, how do they relate? And in this sermon, Peter is going to focus in on the strangeness of what it means to defer to authority. A strange 
deference is what we're trying to consider today. And the way we'll do so is by seeing how that deference works itself out in terms of authority in general, but also unjust authority in particular. And then we'll ask ourselves the question, where do we find both the clarity and the strength to abide by both? Let me just say by way of a sidebar, this text has not one, but two large elephants in the room. And we're going to do our best to nod at each elephant until hopefully they nod back. And if you don't think they've sufficiently nodded back, that's why we're doing the Q&A. But for now, I wonder if you might just hear what Peter has to say about this strange kind of deference. Our central text for today is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Be subject, subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, where when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. So from the beginning of Peter's letter, he's told those early churches that are spread about in, in cities uh, strewn throughout what is now Turkey, that they are born unto a living hope, that they have uh, received an inheritance that will not fade, that they've born into a new community that has a new solidarity of both love and of holiness. But essential to their understanding of themselves is that they've been given a new citizenship, that even if they are native-born to Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia, they have an entirely different way of thinking how they relate to those authorities. They are, even if native-born, to think of themselves as essentially immigrants or resident aliens, those who are home but not yet really home. And, and in thinking of their citizenship in that way, they have to ask themselves the question, how do they relate to the authorities of those other citizenships? 
How do they think of the governors and the prefects and uh, the other magistrates of Pontus and Bithynia and Galatia? And we ask ourselves the same question. How do we relate to the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch? What does it mean to think of other authorities in light of Jesus' authority? And Peter makes it very plain when he says there in the very first part of the verse, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. And there's the word, be subject. The Greek word behind it is the Greek word hupotasso. And you're going to hear that word twice in this text. You're going to hear it again next week. And Peter doesn't really define for us what that word be subject means. It may mean an unqualified submission. It may mean just sort of a, a mere toleration of that authority. But I think that you and I can maybe infer his meaning from the reasons why we should what does it mean to defer to those authorities and why should we? He gives us two reasons. The first reason comes there in verse 13 when he says, um, be subject to the Lord's authority or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Those authorities, Peter says, exists for a particular reason. They're there to work and maintain the common good of the societies over which they're in charge. They are empowered to do what governors are out to do, to, to restrain that which curtails the flourishment of a society and to cultivate and protect that which, which allows that society to flourish. That's what it means to, to punish evil and to praise the good. So that's their job. And, and Peter sees that, and Peter's wanting these early churches to see that, even though they still believe that Jesus is Lord. You may remember uh, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, how he speaks of his Father as one who makes his reins to fall on both the just and the unjust. He's there to commit himself unto the good of an entire society, and therefore sends his blessing indiscriminately. If that is God's intention for his world, and if magistrates and those who are governors are out to seek the same end, then Peter is just telling these churches, don't get in the way of that. Jesus is Lord, but don't be an impairment to those governors' authorities to seek a common good for which you have a certain interest. It makes a kind of clear logic in that sense. If God is involved in the empowerment of the authorities, and if his intention is to work through them to bring about the common good, then don't get in the way, church. That's the first reason why you meek subject to those authorities. There's a second reason, and it's similar to something that you might have heard last week. This kind of submission to those authorities is its own act of persuasion. Persuading who? Persuading those who are looking at you finding you strange for all sorts of reasons, maybe treating you strange, and perhaps treats you strange because they're suspicious that you're out to, to do something notorious, to, to undermine or, or cut across the social fabric of that society. Peter is saying, when you sub subject yourselves to those ruling authorities, you are saying unto them, we are in this together. That you are saying, no matter how much your belief is different from mine, no matter how much we disagree on things of a fundamental nature, to subject yourself to those governing authorities is to say to them, we are for this people. We are for this community. 
And so we subject ourselves to those laws in order to, to say unto them, we're in this with you. We're in this for you. And that gives the lie to any thought that they should be suspicious of your intentions simply because you actually believe this funny thing that there was a man who was risen from the dead and now you call him Lord. In those are the reasons why we submit ourselves to that. And in Jesus, what we have is a different kind of freedom. This is submitting yourself to a certain level of constraint by virtue of your citizenship in those people. But with Jesus, there is a freedom that we have that is a freedom greater than anything. We have in him a freedom from sin, a freedom from guilt, a freedom from the schemes of the devil, a freedom from the fear of death, and in all of that is our freedom. But with that freedom comes a certain measure of a privilege of responsibility. Martin Luther, he put it very succinctly in one sentence. He said this, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. We have a freedom like no other freedom, and yet with that freedom comes a calling to be a servant, and even a servant to a society of which they are not even, don't even hold the greatest claim upon your citizenship. That's what it means to believe in that. And you know, this isn't novel information. You, Jesus says as much when, when somebody asks him, do you, do you pay the tax to Caesar? And Jesus says, pull out a coin. Whose name is on it? Whose face is on it? Caesar's face. And then he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and under the Lord the things that are the Lord's. Meaning if it belongs to Caesar, then give to him what is his due. But God's stamp is on you, so act accordingly. That's, that's straight out of Jesus. And Paul Paul is no less different, and, and his buddy Peter, they, they are in lockstep with one another. And so you may remember something that Paul says in his Romans chapter 13. He says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. What Peter, what Peter and Paul are both saying is that God is involved, in a sense, in the institution of other authorities. That, that God is not limited by the free actions of those human authorities in what he means to do, and that in fact he has a purpose to work in and through them unto his good ends. But it's at this point that you probably sense an odor and that odor is the scent of an elephant in the room. It's the first elephant. And we're going to nod at that elephant. And what do I mean by the elephant in the room? Here's the question. If you believe what Peter and Paul and what apparently Jesus is believing, isn't that a rather dangerous form of belief? Aren't you, in fact, ascribing to human authorities a certain larger, transcendent authority that allows them then to justify some of the worst actions and decisions ever imaginable. Aren't you empowering people to do acts of evil by believing that God has a part in them? And that's a legitimate question. Because there's historical precedent for asking the question. There is no shortage of people who claim some sort of divine authority, 
to their own authority. It's, it's uh, what is it, James VI of England who claimed the divine right of kings. And it's in that stream of thought that people were able to perpetrate any number of atrocities. That's true. Just as it is true of authorities who turned the idea of theism on its head and, and expunged it from its very social fabric and was able to commit atrocities purely on the source of their own reason. It is true that you can take thoughts like this and use it to justify certain things. And yet, here's the question. What do we do with it? How do we think of what Peter, Paul, and Jesus are saying with respect to that authority? Let's start with Peter. Peter in Acts chapter 4 and 5 is with the apostles. He's preaching the gospel. He gets picked up by religious authorities, which in that day, religious actions had civic consequences, so they're very much tied together, very much embedded in one another's lives. He gets picked up, he gets put in prison, he gets roughed up, and he gets threatened. Don't say another word about Jesus. And in Acts 5 verse 32, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. He believes their authorities, and he believes in submission to them, but he also believes that God has an even greater claim upon him than any human authority does. Well, let's consider what Paul says. In the same book of Acts, Paul is with Silas. They, too, get picked up by civic authorities, Roman authorities, for, in their mind, disturbing the peace. They get thrown in a Philippian jail. One night, Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God, and all of a sudden, there's an earthquake happens. The jail cells break open. All of their chains fall off. The jailer wakes up from his slumber, looks around, sees the cells open, thinks they've all left, is about to pull open his knife and commit his own suicide because he thinks he'll never be able to explain until Paul says, wait, we're all here, man. We're all here. And at that moment, the jailer, you might say, is a little bit persuaded that something that Paul is up to might be worth hearing. Well, the next day, the magistrates find out that Paul was a Roman citizen, so they violated their own law. What do they do? They send the police to his cell and say, you can go. You can go. Sorry about that. Just keep it quiet. And what does Paul say in Acts chapter 16, verses 34 and 36? He says, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And sure enough, the magistrates are forced to come. What is Paul doing in that moment? He's calling them to account. He's calling them to answer for the violation of law. He's calling them to answer for a violation of what his dignity was, what he deserved. He didn't simply submit to their mendacity. He called them out to live by a higher law. So Peter and Paul, they're making this explicit call to defer to human authority because they're saying that God is not uninvolved in those institutions' work. He has an interest in their work. But Peter and Paul are also saying, they're also saying that because God is involved, then God's interests are what those institutions are accountable to. They are not authorities unto themselves. They abide by a higher will, and therefore to defy that authority at moments, like Peter and Paul so is just a smidgen of, that is actually not defying God's authority, but upholding it. And so we see how they thread that needle. Martin Luther King, imprisoned in many occasions, 
speaks of that higher law and that authority, that premise. He says this, I submit that an individual who breaks the law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order, in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. And I think he would add the highest respect for God. And so Peter and Paul are helping us to clarify, to nuance our understanding of those institutions' authority and how to think of them with respect to God's empowerment of them. Now, look, it's probably easier in our day to, to act or, or find clarification in what Peter and Paul mean by being subject to every human institution. The, the harder question is to ask, why, why think about God at all? Why, why import thoughts of, of the deity in thinking about human authority or institutions at all? Why not, why not maintain in your own mind this very clear wall of separation in your head about such things, to borrow a phrase? Because, I'll tell you, because to discard any and all thoughts of a transcendent law to which we all must pay homage is one either presumptuous or perilous. Tom Holland is a historian, grew up in a nominal Christian home, threw it all off for a while, continued to study antiquity, really considered the ethics and morals of the ancient Greeks, the Stoics, the Romans, and even then considered his own history within Christianity and came to realize something rather profound that changed his whole thinking about Christianity to the point that now he would call himself a Christian in terms of ethics even if he's not so far as to go that Jesus is Lord, even though he's rather convinced of this. But upon his study of, of history, of ancient history, and of, and of how Christianity has come to provide for us a whole thinking about a moral framework, he said this, the liberal idea that if people are free, they'll be kind, seemed to me ridiculously wrong. Now, He's using that word liberal in a particularly British way of putting it, not in the typical liberal conservative way of we thinking it in this country. He's, he's casting liberal in the idea of the idea that there is, no, there is no divinity to appeal to. We appeal only to our own reason for any kind of authority. But he goes on to say, as Western power retreats, we've come to realize that these values that we had assumed were universal, human rights, the inherent dignity of man, the obligation of the rich to the poor, are actually very culturally contingent. Our assumption that there are universal values is itself very culturally contingent, and specifically Christian, I think. I can find no basis for believing in any of this stuff at all that does not involve a conscious leap of faith. Tom Holland is saying, if you'll just look at the historical record, that which you and I take for granted owes its origin unto what Jesus has said to us and what Peter and Paul are espousing themselves. And therefore, to discard that out of hand is perilous because we have no foundation to replace it. Peter's words presuppose that authorities will act in God's stead. It presupposes a hope that those authorities will act with a certain measure of justice. But what about when those authorities act unjustly? In ways far greater and far more heinous than anything that even Peter and Paul experienced in their own lives. 
That's the second thing we want to talk about. Peter has told us that when it comes to thinking of authority in general, when it comes to, to our deference to those authorities in general, we look to the Lord for clarity. But when it comes to deferring to authorities which are unjust, you know what we're supposed to look to? We're supposed to look to the slave. Now, one commentator I heard recently say this, to put it in historical context, slavery is older than writing. It is embedded in the social and economic um, fabric of, of ancient societies and, and, yes, modern societies, to be sure. And into that world, Peter has to say something, a world in which slavery is a given. And he says there, in verse, starting in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There are two ideas that are clear through what Peter has to say in that text. And the one is this, he takes slavery in that moment as a given. But he also says that the slave's responsibility to even unjust masters is to respond without violence, without retaliation. And as soon as we hear those words, and as soon as we consider the implications, we smell the other elephant in the room. And we're going to have to nod to that elephant, and hopefully it might nod back. But the second elephant is this, is what Peter espousing is this expectation of how slaves might respond, is it in not in some ways actually serving to perpetuate an institution that is a blight upon all humanity? Is it not actually allowing it to continue by refusing to recommend that they retaliate against mistreatment? Isn't that what allowed slavery to continue for a very long while because no one had the courage to stand up and face it? That's the elephant in the room. And in order to think about that, we have to recognize, or we have to ask the question, is Christianity complicit in that? Is Christianity complicit in that? What then? Slavery, first of all, you have to make some distinctions between how it was working then and how it works in accordance with how we typically think about it. In that day, you would become a slave either as a consequence of war or because you owed a debt or because you were born into a family who was enslaved, or you would do so voluntarily in order to become a citizen of a people. In that day, uh, when it comes to the, the laws regarding slavery in the Old Testament, you were, if you were a slave, you could purchase your own freedom. You would typically work that slavery in order to pay off a debt. You would have rights. You would be able to have an, a court to appeal to, to redress wrongs. If your master took out a tooth, if he knocked a tooth out of you, you were permitted to go free. And at the seventh year of your enslavement, you were freed. It was the year of Jubilee. And your master would be required to send you out with provision at his cost. All of that, it's still slavery. It's still slavery. It is still, though, a distinctive form of slavery 
with respect to what we know as chattel slavery based on ethnicity that was full of brutality and it was lifelong. But at the same time, the fact is there are segments of the church in countless areas, eras of church history that serve to prop up slavery. And the question is, is that impulse at the roots of the faith? That's the elephant in the room. How do we answer that? Well, let's first talk about what Paul says. Peter's buddy Paul. In 1 Corinthians 7, Peter is talking to people in whatever station they find themselves in at the time that they're converted unto Jesus. And he speaks to those who are bondservants. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Meaning, if you have a chance, take it. Do it. It's better to be free than to be a slave, even though slavery is embedded into the very social and economic conscience of the culture. But let's, let's fast forward about 300 years to a theologian from Greece named Gregory of Nyssa. He gave, he gave homilies, sermons on, of all books, the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he said this in his homily, I got me slaves and slave girls, but for what price, tell me? What did you find in existence worth as much as this human nature? What price did you put on rationality? How many obols did you reckon the equivalent of the likeness of God? How many staters did you get for selling the being shaped by God? God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. If he is in the likeness of God and rules the whole earth and has been granted authority over everything on earth from God, who is his buyer? Tell me, who is his seller? Gregory of Nyssa goes on both in that sermon and in other, several other sermons to say, if you will just meditate upon the fact that we're all made in the image of God and just meditate on the fact that in Christ there is neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there comes a point in which you must ask yourself, what logic do you appeal to to think that you could ever purchase that which has an immeasurable worth? You can't. And that was a profound thought. And that was an unprecedented thought. Kyle Harper, professor of history at the University of Oklahoma, says very clearly, nobody at that point had ever thought of one who had a human dignity such that it took aim at the very institution of slavery. And that's why many, many years later, with Gregory of Nyssa and Paul himself, planting a seed that took a long time to sprout, you hear someone like Frederick Douglass in a speech he gave on the 4th of July, a speech that you may have heard this last 4th of July called, What to the Slave is the 4th of July? He excoriates the church for any number of times in which it sought to prop up slavery. But he says, in full stride, standing with God and the crushed and the bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. Even he knows that though the church in many ways had sought to perpetuate it, he knew it was not because they were upholding doctrine, but because they were trampling upon it. It was a delayed fuse that Christianity set for the end of that institution. And therefore, as we look at that elephant in the room who wonders what Peter is saying, 
we must acknowledge that when you think and take the entirety of the gospel in its fullness, that no, it was not there to prop up slavery, even though it took slavery as a given in that moment. Okay, that's a, that's a, long, that's a long excursus. The question still remains, why is Peter recommending this posture to those who are slaves in enduring rather than retaliating against mistreatment by masters? Why would he recommend that? Why, why defer both to just masters and to unjust ones? Why not answer violence with violence? And why, of all things, would God consider that behavior of slaves commendable in his sight? In the natural response to facing mistreatment, Peter is grabbing or hinting at something that I think we all need to reckon with. And how what happens to us if we're to respond with violence with violence. In one sense, there is a personal risk, a risk to yourself. When you refuse to avoid escalation, you are actually risking an inner degradation. Jordan B. Peterson ask this question, why become virtuous so that you can bear the suffering of life without becoming corrupt? Meaning whenever you face something that really tests you, really threatens you, why do you endure that? Why do you choose virtue over vice? Because if you choose vice, you're contributing to your own degradation rather than solving anything. James Baldwin, an outspoken civil rights author, among others, he said this, whoever debases others debases himself. If you, are, if you treat others as you are being treated, you risk something happening to you that you would never wish upon yourself. There is a personal risk. There is also a communal risk. A risk not only to the community that you're a part of, but a risk to the very hope of injustice ever coming to an end. And that's why I'll quote Martin Luther King once more. If I respond to hate with a reciprocal hate, I do nothing but intensify the cleavage in a broken community. I can only close the gap by meeting hate with love. When Jesus says to us, turn the other cheek, he's not encouraging passivity. It's actually a form of resistance. It's actually asking the one who is mistreating you to see what they're doing, to reckon with what they're choosing. And in so doing, that's its own form of resistance. Peter is not saying to you, if you're a slave in that setting, let them kill you. He's not saying that. But when it is coming down to facing that violence, do not return violence with violence. Wherever injustice continues in this world, the logic of refusing to meet injustice with injustice is essential to the undoing of that injustice. That's what Peter's arguing. That's the reason for this very counterintuitive, unnatural effort. Whether you are the victim of an injustice or whether you are in league with those that are seeking to end and undo injustice, the logic is clear when it comes to thinking about yourself, to your community, and to your effort. But that gets us to the last part of this passage because there is a logic to that response that is deeper still than even the risk to your own self the risk to your community or to your effort. And that logic comes down to thinking about the one who inspires the whole thought. 
When it comes to deferring to authorities in general, we look to the Lord. When it comes to deferring to authorities who are unjust, we look to the slave. And we do that, and we find the strength for it, and the clarity in how we do both by looking to the one who was the Logos. Jesus is the one who became a slave of the highest order. Paul says in Philippians 2, he did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. It made himself what? A slave. A slave for his father's goodwill. He suffered and endured that in deference to his father, but also for our own advantage. And he did that, and in doing so, he becomes an example. Because in facing mistreatment, in facing injustice, he does not sin. He does not revile. He does not threaten. He does not mistreat. And the only way he's able to do that is because he's entrusting himself to his father. A father who was about to work a real justice in and through him in that moment and who would then work a full and final justice at a later day. That's what we know as the gospel. Because that real justice that God works in that moment to satisfy what justice demanded of those who violated his law was to allow his son to suffer unjustly, effectively as being lynched upon a tree by dying on a cross. He's come to free us from the sin that leads to our estrangement with God. He's come to free us from that sin that so easily entangles. And as he does so, he, he shows himself to be our truest shepherd. Look, friends, there are all sorts of movements that are out there that are out to proclaim justice and to seek justice. But my argument that I think is Peter's argument is that there's only one movement that will seek to end oppression that will keep you from becoming an oppressor. And that is by believing that you had to be freed from a deepest form of enslavement and enslavement to sin that will then humble you and both strengthen you for whatever effort you make to seek that end. Where do we go with all this? What's the takeaway? When it comes to human authority, we don't chafe at it simply because it's a human authority, because it is in ways an act of love and respect for the people to which we've become connected and the societies in which we find ourselves. We don't chafe at it. But we also don't comply at every other authority, at every effort of authority, because sometimes there are acts of defiance that are not a defiance of his authority, but actually upholding it. It means we don't respond to hate with hate. We don't respond with violence to violence with violence. We don't respond to disrespect with disrespect. In fact, we respond to vice with virtue. And where we have influence, we use that influence to seek a common good. And where we discover the limits of our influence, we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator who has wrought for us a deepest kind of justice that then is a foretaste of a most comprehensive kind of justice that we might never fathom. That is the strange deference to which he's called us. And though there is great heaven in the details, that is its foundation. And Lord willing, we will walk with clarity and nuance and courage and humility. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.